The Last Days of Jesus, Part 4. Thanks for downloading Cross Defense. This is your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We continue to walk with Jesus to the cross. We hear the first three words that our Lord preaches from this hanging pulpit uh, today, and we rejoice at all these things He's doing for us. So thanks again for downloading uh, this episode of Cross Defense. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Cross Defense. Well, God be praised for His mercy, His great love towards us in Christ, that He continues to bless us, even in the midst of this pandemic. I hope you're all well, that you're all trusting in the Lord and His kindness, that you're looking at these days as opportunities to express both uh, faith towards God and love towards the neighbor. That's what always the, this life is a test of. And Remember, this is the Christian basics this is the Christian life. We live in faith towards God and in fervent love toward one another. And these times test both of those, that we trust in God in life and in death and good times and in bad, and that we look to love our neighbor and serve him. I saw a nice, by, this is, we're going to do the last days of Jesus today, by the way, part four, looking at Jesus from Pilate to the crucifixion. So that's where we're headed. Uh, and I'll, oh, by, I'm your host, by the way, Pastor Brian Wolfman, there, pastor of uh, Jesus Steph and St. Paul Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. Uh, coming to you every Monday afternoon live count KFUO and we got the Facebook cranking here too uh, not the fa the YouTube so coming at you uh, rejoicing in the Lord's word uh, re reminded that these are always testing our faith towards God and our love for the neighbor I saw a nice video yesterday it was someone did a, it was just a nice kind of cinematic video of Austin Texas and it was empty I mean the streets were empty the restaurants were empty everything was empty and it said remember that this empty space is is love that when we when we sit at home so as to not afflict our neighbor or infect our neighbor then we are loving our neighbor and that's good I mean that is really I mean, God be praised. Uh, another announcement, by the way, um, I wanted to I wanted to show you guys this or tell you about this. I I wrote a little book accidentally. Uh, it's called uh, "And Take They Our Life: Martin Luther's Theology of Martyrdom." This book came about well for a couple of reasons. But one day I was looking through Luther's works because I knew he knew this quote, this famous quote from Tertullian, who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And um, that's right. Uh, that is a true statement that Tertullian makes. And Luther knew about it. In fact, it was, already, it was kind of a famous saying already by then. So I was looking through Luther, trying to find it, and I started to see all the times that Luther mentioned the martyrs. It's amazing. We've talked about that on this show uh, before, about Luther's great love for the martyrs. He has a stunning sort of statement where he's talking about the martyrs of his own day, and he says, in our day, the true pattern of Christian living has reemerged, and that pattern is the pattern of martyrdom. I mean, it's wild stuff. So anyway, I just started digging into it, and I was supposed to write an essay for it, and the essay turned into 40,000 words, and that's a book. So now the book is there, and take they our life. You can download this book for free if you go to wolfmuller.co slash life, L-I-F-E, wolfmuller.co slash life. There's a link where you can, you can buy it for, on Amazon for 10 bucks. Or you can buy it on Kindle for three bucks, or you can download the PDF for free. So whichever way you like, if you like to have a book, or you like to have it on the Kindle, or you like to have it as a PDF, or if you like to have it in all three, or whatever. And I think I'm going to be working on it in the weeks to come, just because we're sitting at home. 
I might be working on an audio slash video book version of that. So hopefully that's helpful for you. I mean, it's it's one of my kind of goals in life. I don't know if I should admit this kind of thing to you guys, but it's one of my goals in life that um, that to make Martin Luther more accessible. Because I read Luther and I'm like, wow. I mean, it just kind of explodes in my imagination. Pow. But then I, I, I read it to other people and they're like, oh, it's nice to help me fall asleep. I don't know what's... So anyway, instead of getting frustrated at that, I thought, well, I just got to do my part and kind of spite, you know, throw a little 2020 spice mix on the Luther meat and grill it up for folks so that we can digest it and it'll taste good to us. So, so that's the idea. Anyway, enough of that. Today, we want to go back to the gospel lessons and we are, we're tracking through the last days of Jesus' life, in fact, the last two days of Jesus' life. And we ended last week at this profound moment, the Eke Homo, Behold the Man, where Pilate, remember Pilate is trying to get out of this whole mess. He does not want to, send Je- he does not want to condemn Jesus to death. He's try- Pilate is trying to release Jesus. Like crazy, Pilate is trying to release Jesus. Uh, over and over, he's plotting. He, in fact, there's this one moment where, and this is probably right there, where Pilate says, you know, the crowds don't want to kill Jesus. They like Jesus. It's the Pharisees that want to kill him. So I'm going to go out to the crowds and see, I'm going to go public with this thing. I'm going to try to go over the Pharisees and the, and the uh, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. I'm going to try to go over the head of the Sanhedrin and get the crowds to call for Jesus' release. And, I, and, and Pilate said, I know how to do it because on the Passover, he had a custom of pardoning someone. I don't know where that custom came from. Probably I should go read Alfred Edersheim on that. If you guys don't have... Or you're not familiar with Alfred Edersheim's uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It is fantastic. I mean, it's, whew, is that a good book? Anyway, uh, he probably ha- he has that kind of stuff in there. He's got all this Jewish history. It's really quite nice. And- so there's probably some history to that. But, the- but there was a custom that Pilate would release someone at the time of the Passover. And so he goes out and he puts two guys. He says, who do you want me to release? Jesus, king of the Jews, or Barabbas? Barabbas is a is an insurrectionist and a robber. And Barabbas was one of the reasons why the Romans were were cracking down on the on the Jews because they had this insurrection, these Essenes, the the kind of these rebels that were trying to overthrow the Romans. And it seems like Barabbas was one of those guys. And so the Pilate was sure they'll they'll ask for Jesus and have Barabbas crucified. Well, they don't. The, the Sanhedrin goes through the crowd, and they stir up the crowd, and, and they say, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And Pilate says, what should I do with, with Jesus? And he says, crucify. They cry, crucify him, crucify him. Now, right in the middle of all this, Pilate is going to have Jesus scourged. And remember that the scourging, you, you wouldn't be both scourged and crucified at the same time. I mean, it's one or the other, because the scourging was so bad, it takes you, I mean, you're basically half dead. And crucifixion was supposed to last long time and so if you're scourged and then crucified you're not going to last that long now jesus lasts even less time than they thought I mean, but remember crucifixion was supposed to go on for for days that's why they had to break the legs of the guys crucified next to jesus because i mean you would die by asphyxiation your lungs would fill up with fluid and your heart would burst or whatever and so but you could if you're if you're nailed or you have a platform or whatever you lift yourself up and you get a breath and you go down but if you if your legs are broken, then you can't lift yourself up for a breath. So the the, the diet is falling, and so they got to come and, and they're going to make sure that they die quick. And so they go and break the legs of the guys, the 
with a mallet or something. I mean, I don't don't imagine it too closely, but it's it's pretty gruesome this whole thing. And so they break the legs of the guys on the right and left of Jesus, but they come to Jesus and they see he's dead already after six hours. This is probably a combination of the fact that he was whipped and scourged, which takes you half way to death, and then of course the fact that he bore the weight of the sin of the world. Whew. And that he himself gives up his breath. But anyway. So Pilate has him scourged. And with the with the crown of thorns and the purple robe, he presents him to the people to try to gain their sympathy. Now, it's cruel. It's cruel what Pilate does here. And we look at this. We normally think, man, what a wicked man. What a that Pilate would do such a thing to our Lord. And it's right to think that. But Pilate is trying to do the lesser of two evils. He would rather have Jesus scourged and mocked and let go rather than be crucified. But it's going to fail. And and it's an, it's an important thing for us to consider that Pilate, who, who acts politically to his own advantage rather than according to what he knows to be true, goes down as, in history as the one who under whom Jesus was crucified. We say it in the Creed. Crucified under Pontius Pilate. So I'm going to pick up the reading in John chapter 19, verse 1. And by the way, if you want to follow along, I've kind of spliced together the history of the passion of Jesus uh, according to all the different Gospels, kind of my own little creation. You can find that at, at again, the wolfmuller.co slash passion. wolfmuller.co slash passion. And you can download this and follow along. Or if you have your Bible, John chapter 19, verse 1 says this. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. That's amazing that the crowd, remember, they, they handed Jesus over and they, they brought the accusation to Pilate. He said he's the king uh, and we have no king but Caesar. And they did that because they thought that was going to be the best way to get him, uh, to get Jesus in trouble. But then they come along and kind of in the fervor of the whole thing, they finally admit what's really getting to him, that he claimed to be God. Now, there's a lot of people who will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. It's interesting that... I mean, it's just, it's not true. Jesus over and over makes that claim. He doesn't say the words, I am God, but I am the Father of one, he says, and etc. He'll say a bunch of things like this, but the, the Jews understand what he was saying. So when we see it here, we say that he made himself to be the Son of God. Uh, they fi it finally comes out what their thing is. And when Pilate hears this, he kind of freaks out. What? So he brings Jesus back inside. He says, where, where are you from? What's going on here? Why do they say why do they say you're the son of God? And Jesus doesn't say anything at all. 
it's over. He's not, and this is one of the most amazing things, is that Jesus, I mean, here we are always constantly so busy making the argument for our own goodness and our own righteousness, but Jesus, who alone could say, I'm holy, I'm righteous, it's true, I am the Son of God, I am the judge of the universe. He is content to sit before this human judge and to be condemned for as guilty for things that he hasn't done. So Pilate, frustrated, verse, 9, verse 10 says, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, this is important because, because while we call this the passion of Jesus and we emphasize the fact that, that Jesus is passive, I mean, that's what passion means. It means to be passive, to receive something. So Jesus is receiving this affliction. He's receiving this violence. It's being done to him. And yet it's being done to him according to his will. I mean, he's the one who... He is the one who has is, who is chosen this. He says, you, you have no authority to take my life unless it had been given to you. So Pilate says, oh, no, it says, therefore he who delivered over you. For then on, verse 12, from then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and in, uh, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. So in the ancient world, there was always a outdoor judgment seat. It was called the Bema seat. It was where the judge would sit. In the, Ro in, in the Jewish custom, it was always at the city gate. In the, in the Roman custom, it was in the city center. They would have a temple and a government palace, and they'd have the stores along there, the main stores, and a big square, and you'd have a you'd have a chair, a bema seat there. You could see the ruins of this whenever you go to any ancient Roman city. They've they've got the bema seat in Corinth and in Philippi, and you can see the place even in Jerusalem where they think this thing happened, the the uh, the pavement where the place where Pilate stood, and he comes out and he and he's going to make his public uh, proclamation there. Uh, it says in verse fourteen. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, this little verse, by the way, uh, John chapter 19, verse 14, has caused a lot of questions and a lot of problems. People wonder, how could it be the day of the preparation of the Passover if they ate the Passover already last night? I think Andrew Steinman has done a really nice job showing that in this case, the Passover there indicates the Passover week, and I think that's right. Also, how can we say it was about the sixth hour when we know it was about 9 o'clock when all these things are happening? And... For this, we simply need to remember that the Romans and the Jews had different ways of counting the numbers. So according to the Hebrew reckoning, it was the third hour. According to the, according to the Roman reckoning, it was the, it was the sixth hour. In other words, it's about nine in the morning. So Pilate brings him out, and he says to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified, and they took him. Now I want, I want you to hone in on, before we move to the next text, I want you to hone in on all of the language of king here in the text. Jesus says, 
I have another kingdom, not of this world. Are you a king then? They mock him with a crown and the purple robes. That's king stuff. They say, you're the king who, who struck you. And remember, all of this was prophesied by Jesus, who said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, all will be drawn to him. When he is exalted, this is what happens in a king. They, they, uh, they, they, they are exalted and, and seated on the throne, and the lifting up of Jesus is going to be his crucifixion. Now, I want you to, th th there's two things that are happening. I mean, the Jews claim we have no king but Caesar. Pilate, ironically, is going to say, behold your king. But, but, but So all of these things that are being spoken sort of ironically or mockingly are, in fact, true. So that, so that the soldiers, they put the crown of thorns on Jesus to mock him. Oh, you're a king? Here's your crown. But Jesus wears it. They put the purple robe on him to mock him. To shame him. Oh, look at the king. They bow down and do homage to him, ironically. But Jesus is, is taking these things. Uh, th th he's taking this, this shame, and he's wearing it as his glory. It's really quite stunning. This, th this is a theme of the Gospel of John that's woven all the way through. Remember when Caiaphas says it's better for one man to die for the nation than for the nation to die for one man? That, that, that was spoken ironically, but Jesus will... He'll grab the irony and he'll hold on to it as truth. So when they crown him and, they, and he put Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, that this ironic, this ironic mockery is in fact true. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that and pick up with well, where we're going next. We're going to we're going to Mark chapter 15, uh, the mockery of Jesus before they take him to the crucifixion, and we'll do that after the break. You're listening to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Thanks for being with me for this. Broadcast on the last days of Jesus' quick break, and we'll be right back. On the next Joy, a new setting of a great old hymn. Some contemporary gospel music, that ought to be fun. Plus, we'll devote a major portion of the hour to one of the most beautiful pieces ever written, The Requiem by Gabriel Faure. This is Ron Clem. I'll make it worth your while if you join me this week for Joy. Wednesdays at 1 p.m. during Lent on KFUO. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson with an invitation for your LCMS congregation or organization to become a Church of the Week for a gift of just $595. If you would like, you can split that into monthly gift payments. Also, if you commit to be a Church of the Week between now and Easter, in addition to 35 32nd announcements and your pastor or leader being on one of our programs, we will give you, for your pastor, a beautifully bound Luther's Small and Large Catechisms, compliments of Worldwide KFUO and Concordia publishing house in St. Louis. This small and compact volume has Luther's seal on the front. The pages are gold-edged, and the inside print is plenty large, even for an older person like myself. So contact me to schedule your week. You provide the information for the 30-second spots, and we'll produce them for you. Our thanks to CPH for partnering with us. Call 314-996-1520 to schedule your week today. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. 
Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfinger, pastor of Jesus Death in St. Paul Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas, host of Cross Defense every Monday afternoon. We got a bunch of other stuff. Oh, yeah. I, um, we, if you just, I just published a book yesterday, and Take They Are Life. Martin Luther's Theology of Martyrdom. You can find that at Amazon.com or go to wolfmuller.co slash life. You can download the thing for free. I'd love, it's, it's you know, short read. It's 100 pages or something. And uh, I, I hope it's full of comfort. I mean, Luther is so full. When he looks at death and he talks about Agnes and Agatha laughing on the way to, oh, it's so beautiful. So comforting. He preached about the martyrs in his last sermon that he ever preached. It's, uh, anyway. And it's, a, it's this business of Christian heroes. We need heroes more than ever now. We need heroes. And the martyrs are our Christian heroes. We're talking about Jesus. Now, oh, oh, but this is an interesting thing. Let me kind of work back into the narrative of the passion of Jesus with this interesting thought. I was reading an old book from P.T. Forsyth. I don't, I don't know this guy real well, but I've got some old books of his hanging around the library here. And I picked up one, and he says, you know, there's a difference when we read... Uh, when we read the stories of the martyrs and when we read the story of Jesus, when we go and we read the martyr stories and all of this heroic stuff that happened to them as they were suffering and as they were dying, there's something that just swells up inside of us. We're like the Grinch. Remember the Grinch had the tiny little heart and then he sees this the people singing and and and, boom, 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 and his heart just kind of expands like that. I I don't wonder by the way if something like that might happen with this whole coronavirus thing because you know the devil tries to take away all this stuff like hey you you remember how you used to have money in the stock market and everything poof gone it says hey remember when you used to be able to go outside poof gone and yet here we sit around and rejoice in the lord's word and it's this i mean the devil is not going to have an expanded heart but that, that we can see that there's so much more to the world it's kind of amazing really to think about but when we when we read the stories of the martyrs the the accounts of their suffering and their dying in the name of jesus we just our hearts swell it's like that hymn uh, for all the saints, and it says, it steals on the ear the distant triumph song, and uh, hearts are brave again, and arms are strong. It's like we're here fighting, we're like rah, struggling, and they're getting beat down and whipped, and all this sort of stuff. And then, and then we hear these the songs of the martyrs, and we and 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 it and it just it hits our ears, and it just it kind of it, it expands our hearts, and we have strength to do it. But that's not what happens when we hear about the suffering of Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? It's, so Forsyth makes this, makes this very point, is that Jesus' death is not a martyr's death. Jesus' death is not a, a heroic death. Jesus, all the stuff that happens to Jesus, and especially I think it's because the Gospels are going to be so focused on the shame of the crucifixion of Jesus. It doesn't... When we hear the, 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 of the death of Jesus, we, it doesn't give us courage to die like that. It's something different happens inside of us when we hear the stories of the deaths of the martyrs versus the stories of the death of Jesus. And that's because Jesus didn't die as a hero or as a martyr. Jesus died as the Savior. 
You're not supposed to suffer like Jesus. That's the whole point of it. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the, he is the substitute. He's going, Jesus is going with these steps that he's taking to the cross. He's going where you are supposed to go, but you, but you are not now going to go there. He's taking your place. Fantastic. And he, especially when the sky's dark and especially when the Lord is afflicting him and especially in this forsakenness. I mean, he's there forsaken, so we will never be forsaken. Well, more on that. So, so anyway, we, we want to read the martyrs, and we want to be courageous. But we want to read Jesus, and we want to be repentant. That's what's, it's, it's, you see, different things are brought forth by the reading of these different accounts. Something. That is something. Well, back to the passion here. I, I, it reminded me of something else I was going to talk to you about. Oh, it'll come to me. Mark chapter 15, we're switching over from John to Mark for a little bit. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 19, it's going to give us a little summary of the afflictions of Jesus by the soldiers. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, 120 guys or whatever. I can't remember, actually. If anybody knows the actual number of a battalion, let me know. And they clothed them in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in, in homage to him. Now, how amazing is it that, that the Jews are saying, We have no king but Caesar. In other words, they're refusing to treat Jesus as the king that he is. That, by the way, is the anti-martyrdom. Um, maybe this is what I was thinking of earlier. Remember how the martyrs died because they said Jesus is king, and they refused to say Caesar is king. They refused to say Caesar is Lord. And here the Sanhedrin is saying, Caesar's our Lord. But now these soldiers, the, so, so the Sanhedrin, who refused to, to worship Jesus as king, are one thing. And then here you have the soldiers who are worshiping Jesus as king, but out of mockery. Now, at this point, it's good for us to remember that, that we can look at the suffering of Jesus in three different ways. There's a threefold suffering that Jesus endures. There is the physical suffering, and there is the shame, and there is the wrath of God. Now, this is, a, this is an amazing sort of thing. Oh, I got a, oh, thank you. Jennifer, uh, who's watching uh, live here, sent me a note that says, the ESV Study Bible says that a, that a battalion is a, a 600 people. So you can imagine Jesus surrounded by 600. And they're mocking him. So you have the threefold suffering of Jesus. Number one, the physical suffering. Now I think a lot of times in Lent, we hear sermons or Bible studies on the physical suffering of Jesus. And you have the you kind of have these uh, medical accounts of what it's like to be crucified. I mean, you know, the pressing down of the thorns on the head of Jesus, or the whip that tears off his back all the way to his ribs, or, or the, um, the weight or the nails or the way that crucifixion works, how it dis you know it pulls your shoulders out of joint, and it was an excruciatingly painful sort of thing. But isn't this interesting? Is that the New Testament barely mentions the physical pain? Now, on the one hand, it doesn't have to. Everybody or almost everybody knew about it. They knew they'd seen it, you know, so they didn't need to 
they didn't need to watch the movie The Passion of the Christ because they had just they could just walk into town and see what it looks like. But on the other hand, I think that there's a there's a the second kind of suffering is really really profound, and that's the shame of the cross. Now the the difference between so, and I I think the shame of the cross is really what the gospels are going to focus on. This idea that Jesus is mocked, that they they slap they prophes they slap him, but they don't just slap him across the face. They blindfold him and slap, but they slap him, and then they say, "Prophesy, who hit you?" Or before they strike him on the head with the reed, they put it in their put, they put it the reed in Jesus' hand and they bow down and to worship him like he's a king, and then they take it and hit him on the head with it. Or even as he's crucified, the Pharisees are going by. They said, and they said he saved others. Why can't he save himself? He said he was the son of God. Where's God now? This mockery, the mockery of the cross, or the very fact that they were gambling for Jesus' tunic. He had a one-piece, you know, sewn in one piece of cloth tunic that they didn't, they refused to tear into fours to take home, and they, so they were gambling for it to fulfill the prophecy. But they had stripped Jesus, maybe completely, maybe mostly. Now there's a, I got, I got my chops busted one time for this because, because I wrote about how Jesus was crucified uh, naked. In the book, Has American Christianity Failed? And I got a, a nice letter from a man saying, I would like to invite you to reconsider that because there was a provision that the Romans had given to the Jews that they could cover up most of the person's uh, private parts while that while they were being crucified. So normally Ro the Romans, when they crucified someone, they'd just strip them, and you'd hang there nude before the world. But perhaps there was a provision in place in Judea that precluded nude crucifixion. So, so Jesus would have been stripped or mostly stripped, one or the other. In other words, there's a chance that the, you know, we talk about how the pictures of the crucifixion, which have Jesus basically has a loincloth on, that could be historically accurate from what we know. But anyway, he's mostly stripped. And the difference between physical pain and shame is something that's it's good for us to reflect on. And, and here's the, I'll give you two examples of it. If I gave you a choice, I say, okay, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you two options. Option number one, I'm going to punch you in the face. And option number two, I'm going to spit in your face because I'm so angry with you. What do you prefer? Now, this is interesting. I, don't, I mean, you might be, you can tell if you're listening to someone, you can tell them what you prefer. But whenever I do that in Bible class, it's about a 50-50 split. But why is it? Because it's not like being spit on in the face actually physically hurts. It doesn't cause physical pain unless I'm some sort of like world champion watermelon seed spitter or something like that. It doesn't physically hurt, but it shames you. It's a it's a shameful sort of thing to be spit on in the face. Or or how about this? I'll give you other two more options. You got two choices. I'm going to punch you in the face, or I'm going to stand you up in front of a crowd and take your clothes off. What do you choose? I everybody says punch me in the face. That's a kind of middle school nightmare horror where you dream that you show up at school and you forgot to put your pants on. You know that kind of shame. And the Gospels focus on the shame. There's a reason for it, too. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. The, sh the shame was really the thing that got to him. I mean, the physical stuff was one thing, but the shame of the cross was a true, true suffering for our Lord. 
But there's a third suffering. And we're getting to it. There's a third suffering of Jesus on the cross that's really the suffering that wins for us the forgiveness of sins. It's the suffering that Jesus is talking about when he prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. It's the suffering that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 53, where it says that he was stricken by God and afflicted. Who struck Jesus on the cross? Who struck Jesus? There's a lot of different ways that we answer that question. We say, well, look, the, the soldiers for the high priest struck Jesus. The soldiers of Pilate struck Jesus. The soldiers who crucified him struck Jesus. When we understand it rightly, we, because of our sin, struck Jesus. But the true stroke, the true stroke is the stroke that, that God gives. The stroke, as we sing in the Lenten hymn, the stroke that justice gave. That, that is the suffering that, that as Jesus is, is hanging between heaven and earth, laden with the sins of earth, laden with everything that I've ever done wrong and everything that you've ever done wrong, every law of God that's ever been broken in all of the world. Jesus is suffering all of that. And the wrath, the holy and righteous wrath of God comes down upon him. For those three hours of darkness, we're not there yet in the story. We'll get there. That, that suffering, that suffering that you and I ought to know, but never will, because that's the suffering that Jesus is taking for us. Now, it's important because the, the thieves on the right and left side of Jesus also suffered physically. They also suffered shame, although not like Jesus did, but they also suffered this sort of thing. And I suppose you and I could suffer pain and we could suffer shame. And I think the reason why Jesus suffers those two things is, I mean, it all kind of goes together, but so that we could understand just a little bit, we get a little bit of taste of, of the true suffering that we will never taste at all. I mean, we might suffer physically, in this life we might suffer some shame in this life but the suffering of the wrath of God we you Christian and I will never know because Jesus took all of that for us so I suppose it's possible that you and I could be arrested and mocked by Roman soldiers beat up, crucified, or whatever, but you will not be smitten by God. You will not be afflicted. You will not be forsaken. Jesus is praying that psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can pray the next one. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. So this, this threefold suffering of Jesus is key, key to understanding what's going on. Okay, it's 9 o'clock on Friday morning, Good Friday, and we're going to switch over to Luke 23. Verse 26 it says, they led him, Jesus, away. They seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the, to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with them, and when they came to the place 
that is called the skull, they cru- there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. One quick note on this text. Simon of Cyrene is carrying the cross. The Gospel of Mark in Mark 15 tells us that Simon of Cyrene was the father of two, Alexander and Rufus. Now, why in the world would Mark interrupt the story of the passion of Jesus to tell us the names of the sons of Simon of Cyrene? My best guess, can you imagine this? My best guess is that Simon and Alexander and Rufus, his children, became Christians. In fact, my guess is that maybe even they were pastors, or at least they were known to the people who would be first reading the Gospel of Mark, and they'd say, oh, is that, si- is that Simon? Wow, I know his son, Alexander. I know his son, Rufus. Which means, just think about this, which means that one day in the resurrection, you and I will be able to meet Simon of Cyrene and his boys, Alexander and Rufus, introduce ourselves to them. Thank him for his service to our Lord of carrying the cross. Wow. And rejoicing together with this family in the redemption that Jesus is winning for them and for us. All right, we'll stop there. We're going to pick it up at the first hour, the first three hours of Jesus on the cross and the first of his the first three of his seven words. We'll do that when we come back from the other side of the break. You're listening to Cross Defense. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson. You know, life is a potpourri of good experiences and really tough challenges. Through all those times you need, and so do I, the Lord's precious word and sacred music to get you through. That's what you get when you tune in to Moments of Assurance, Christ-centered songs, scripture, news items, trivia, humor, you name it. So tune in. You'll be richer for it over the noontime hour here on Worldwide KFUO. Moments of Assurance is underwritten by Mid-American Coaches. Hey, I wrote another book, and take they are life. Martin Luther's Theology of Martyrdom. That's a kind of boring title, but it looks at what Luther thought about the martyrs, which is amazing. I mean, this is heroic stuff, what these martyrs went through, and Luther know it, and and he needed courage. I mean, he thought all along that he was going to die for uh, himself, is going to be a martyr, die for his confession of faith. So, uh, So he thought about these guys often, and it's helpful for us. I mean, they... They, the, the martyrs are the ones who have finished the race, and they are our heroes. So you can find this uh, book uh, and take their life on the website, wolfmuller.co slash life, and you can download it for free. There's a PDF to download the thing. I mean, I, I just want you to rejoice in this stuff. There's a way you can buy a paperback from Amazon for 10 bucks, I think, or you can get it on Kindle for a few bucks as well. Uh, so that's there for you, wolfmuller.co slash life, and take their life Martin Luther's Theology of Martyrdom. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We've gotten to Golgotha. We've traveled with Jesus now, and Simon of Cyrene, who's carrying the cross, and we've arrived now at the last six hours of our Lord's earthly ministry till the resurrection. He's going to be crucified. The seven last words of Jesus are going to come. Um, are going to come to us now. I don't know how much we just got. We have twenty minutes, fifteen or so radio time. Uh, so we'll see how far, and we'll take this up, of course, again next week, uh, Holy Week, 
and finish. And I think we'll continue on for a couple of weeks after that with uh, Easter. The Easter narratives are a little bit tricky to to kind of sketch together, but we'll do that. But we'll pick it back up. Let's see the text here I'm reading is, um, uh, sorry, John chapter 19, verse 18. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. This was the normal custom, by the way. The, the cross, remember, was always, it was outside of town for a couple of reasons. Number one, I mean, it was a messy thing, so you don't want to do it in town. It would make a mess everywhere. They always do it by the gate. It's, it, you know, it should remind you, remember uh, in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, when um, at the opening scene, and the, here comes the pirate, and he's sailing into the port, and there is kind of hanging on the gallows, are two skeletons, and the sign above it says, Pirates, be warned. That's kind of the idea of the, of the crucifixion. It was the people there on the cross were like, were like billboards warning people not to do whatever it is that these guys did. So you see a guy there writhing on the cross, and above him it says, Thief. And you say to yourself, well, I'm going to change my plans of stealing stuff, you know or adulterer, or murderer, or insurrectionist, or whatever. So it's so they would always put the, the condemnation above the person on the cross. They would nail it there. Now, you've seen, no doubt, the, a, a picture of the crucifixion, and it has above Jesus the I-N-R-I, INRI. Well, that's a, simply abbreviations for the Latin of what Pilate writes here, Jesu Nazareum Rex Judaicum, which means Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And Pilate wrote it in Latin and in Greek and in Aramaic or Hebrew, and he posted it up there above Jesus. Uh, did you? Oh, yeah. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said I'm the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, I mean, we might pause at this point and say, what is going on with Pilate? I mean, what does he actually believe? Does he believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That he's, But he, well, in, in some ways it doesn't matter. I mean, because, it, because it, what, what won the day for Pilate was fear. It's important for us to remember this. What, what wins the day for Pilate is his fear, which is idolatry. God says, fear me alone, but Pilate fears the crowds, he fears for his welfare, he fears for his office, he fears for rebellion or whatever. So he is eternally, not eternally, but he's always now the despised one under whom Jesus was crucified. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. I'd like you to notice, it's a very interesting thing, to, a curious thing, I suppose, to see, but... When, when the Gospels tell us that Jesus is fulfilling biblical prophecy, it's, it's mostly connected to his birth and his death. 
In other words, it's mostly connected to the times when Jesus wasn't deciding what to do. Jesus didn't tell these guys to gamble for his clothes. They just gambled for his clothes, thus fulfilling the prophecy. There's a couple of times where Jesus is very explicit. I'm fulfilling prophecy. When, for example, he got the donkey and rode into town. Uh, but, but, there's, but especially these kind of uh, Old Testament texts that are clustered around the birth of Jesus in Matthew and then here clustered around the death of Jesus in the Gospel of John are really key to understanding what's going on. It's one of the great proofs of the truth of the Scripture is the precision with which the life and death of Jesus fulfills biblical prophecy. And John is highlighting that for us. So they gamble for his clothes just like it was prophesied in Psalm 22. We're going to move over to Luke 23 and pick up the first two words of Jesus from the cross. Now, let me just kind of set this up for you guys. If you're listening, I draw this out if, if you were in Bible class, but you're listening. So just try to try to imagine it. Um, there are seven words from Jesus on the cross. Uh, Matthew and Mark are both only going to give us one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Matthew gives it to us in, in Hebrew, and Mark gives us to it in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, or Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. So, though, so Matthew and Mark, if you were just reading those Gospels, Jesus says one thing right in the middle. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And that's the fourth word. It's the middle word. But Luke is going to give us three words, two at the beginning, one at the end. John's going to give us three words, one at the beginning and two at the end. And we should see these somewhat clustered. So you have the three words from Jesus at the beginning of the crucifixion during the first three hours when the sun is still out. And then you have the three hours of darkness, noon until three. And then the cry of dereliction, my God, my God. And then the three last words. There's another pattern to notice, and that is this. The first word, the fourth word, and the seventh word. So the first, the middle, and the last words of Jesus on the cross are all three prayers. So, and maybe one other pattern, the first word and the last word are both addressed to God the Father. Father, forgive them. Father, into your hands I commend myself. And then in the middle, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And then the other two, so the second and the third word are spoken to the thief and to Mary and John. And then the the fifth and the sixth words are speaking to the soldiers uh, and then to the world. I thirst, it's finished. So, so that's the kind of the overall pattern that the Gospels give us of the last words of Jesus. So we're going to get to the first two, and they're both from Luke 23, starting with verse 33. And when they, had, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now this is just, it's just amazing. I mean, I don't know, I, it's not probably not good radio just to sit here and think about this and not say anything, because, you know, you want to hear something when you're listening to the radio. But just to think about this, what Je here Jesus is, is being crucified unjustly. He's being condemned as a criminal and put to death for not doing anything wrong, for loving his neighbor. And as he is being crucified, he cries out these miraculous words, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. That to have this kind of mercy, 
in the midst of suffering. But here's an amazing thing. It's not, just, Jesus, it's not like Jesus is the only one who's ever done that. Because in just a few, in just a few years, we're going to hear Stephen being stoned in, in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. And he's going to say the same thing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Or we're going to have Brother Henry being burned in the year 1526. And he's going to say, as they're, as they're lowering the mace on his chest to crush him and kill him, he's going to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The Holy Spirit gives, ugh, gives this gift of this forgiveness. Boy. But it comes from Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. It, it, this is, we see the point of Jesus on the cross. What is the point of Jesus there? It's for this forgiveness. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So the soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was this inscription also over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, you will be today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, Jesus says, I'm coming into my kingdom right now. And you'll be with me in life and in death and in life eternal. How fantastic. Now the gospel, I think it's the gospel of Matthew tells us that both of the criminals railed against Jesus. Now, how, I mean, how, here, here's these three guys, all three being crucified, and the one on the right and the left are looking at Jesus mocking him. I mean, here, it's not like Jesus is going to catch a break. He doesn't have, I mean, nobody is sympathetic. The Jews are not, the Romans, the soldiers, nobody. The, even the guys that are do, having the same thing happen to them are mocking him. But as, but as this suffering continues, one of them is looking at Jesus and he notices something different. There's something different about the way that Jesus suffers and dies. This, one of the soldiers sees it and one of the criminals sees it. And he, and he realizes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy is not suffering what he deserves. This guy is suffering. There's something different about this. This guy is—he's more than just—he's more—he's more even than just a man. He maybe this what he, what is preached about him is true. He is the Son of God. Look at him pronouncing forgiveness to his enemies, and he and he looks at him and he says, "Jesus, remember me. Let me find a place in your mind." We we. We, we sing it in the hymn, Jesus, remember me. Or how about this one? Lord Jesus, think on me. That's what he's doing on the cross, by the way. He's remembering us. And he's remembering our affliction. He's remembering our sin. He's remembering our, our, dire, our dire condition, and he's dying for it. One more. 
Switching to John 19, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So by the way, just Mary and Mary and Mary. And just to also note that Mary's sister is Mary. So I so suppose when they were growing up, you could just say, Mary, time for dinner. They'd both come running. Maybe it's a sister-in-law. I don't, I don't know how exactly this whole thing works. But anyway, there's Mary and Mary and Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, the wife of Clopas, who is the sister of Mary. And Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Now this is also an amazing text that Jesus is here fulfilling the last bit of the fourth commandment that he needs to fulfill before he dies for our breaking of the fourth commandment. He sees John, the disciple that he loved. What a cool name. That's our name too. Brian, who Jesus loves. God be praised. And uh, and he sees John there, he sees Mary there, and he says, all right, look, you guys got to take care of each other. John, you got to take care of Mary. I'm gone now. It's not my vocation anymore. So you got to take over. And they give them to each other. Church history tells us that, by the way, this was fulfilled and that Mary traveled even with John all the way to Ephesus and died there in Ephesus. There She's buried there in Ephesus. At least that's what the church history says, and it's probably true. Uh, there is a house that they think was the house of Mary, and that's probably not true. <laughs> hmm. But Jesus, even as he is dying for the sins of the world, is caring for his mom. Lo loving them to the last. Loving them to the last. He, he, he can't even think of his own... There you go. He can't even think of his own needs now. He's, he looks down. I mean, here, here he's stumbling under the cross... And he says, don't pity me. Here he's hanging from the cross, and he looks at Mary, and he says, I, I'm caring, don't worry, I'm caring for you still. And I suppose that's what we need to know. I mean, Jesus is on the cross for us. He's, he's there. Jesus is on the cross not so that he can, he's there not so that we can pity him, but because he pities us and knows that we need a Savior. So he does it. If the cup could pass from him, it would have passed, but it cannot. So he is now drinking it to the dregs for you. All right, we'll mark it there. Pick up next week, Holy Week, with the, whew, maybe the most important part. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll meditate on what that means, what it means for us, how Psalm 22 comes into play, and what the three hours of darkness are. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Thanks for... Thanks for joining me here on Cross Defense. God's peace be with you as you rest always in the shadow of his wings. But you're extended on the cross. God's peace be with you. Talk to you soon. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. 
Find past episodes and support cross-defense at kfuo.org. Thanks, as always, for being part of the podcast family here on Cross Defense. If there was something helpful for you, oh, boy, it'd be great if you pass it on to a friend or family. Let them know that this is here and it's a resource for you, for your faith, and uh, for your love, and for hope. Uh, thanks for being part of the fun. There's always more theology over at wolfmuller.co, W-O-L-F-M-U-E-L-L-E-R.co. There's some videos, some other audio stuff, and sermons and services and all this kind of stuff as well. So I hope you enjoy that, and uh, thanks for passing on the word. If you have questions, comments, please, I'd love to hear from you. The easiest way to get a hold of me is through the website, wolfmuller.co slash contact. That'll do it. Uh, there's a contact button at the top. You can send me a note. That comes straight to me. So thanks again. Talk to you again next week. God's peace be with you.